Hi, Legends listeners. It's Chris, and I'm here with a special surprise episode. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Bo Lamore, the son of legendary author Louis Lamore. Bo has spent years working on a massive project to bring more of his father's work to light. The project is called Louis Lamore's Lost Treasures. And as you'll hear in the episode, there are three parts to it. I spoke with Bo about probably the biggest part, the two-volume set of books that collects unpublished and unfinished works by his father. The second volume was released last month, in November 2019, for those of you listening in real time. And they use the word treasure appropriately in the titles. These books are treasure troves of work you've never seen before. I have both volumes right here, and I've barely scratched the surface of all the material inside. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Bo Lamore. You'll hear some stories about the author himself and the components of the project. And then, of course, some questions about my favorite Louis L'Amour character, Texas Ranger Chick Beaudry, and the audio dramatizations about him that I still listen to today. And one last note before we get to the interview. Don't forget, Legends of the Old West returns January 8th with the re-envisioned story of Jesse James. After that, we're going to tell one of the quintessential stories of American history. It takes place during the Old West time period, but it does not take place in the West. You'll see what I mean. I guarantee you'll recognize the names. So, all right, that's enough from me. Let's get to the interview with Bo Lamore. Attention lovers of mysteries. I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. Thank you again for joining us here. Bo Lamore, I certainly appreciate it. I'm very excited to hear about this. I was thrilled uh, when the opportunity came across my desk. Uh, so thanks for being a part of the show. We appreciate it. So it's good to be talking to you. So we, we're going to jump, as we were just talking about before we started the recording, we're going to jump in with the basics. I want to make sure the audience hears, first and foremost, the overview of the Lost Treasures Project. It's basically three components. So could you walk us through what those components are? So first and foremost, there, is, there are the postscripts uh, to many of Dad's classic novels that have been around for a long time. These are... 
kind of like articles that I have added in the to the end of the books that sort of tell the story behind the story, interesting things that were associated with that novel. They're they're all different. I've done about thirty of them, and there may be a few more. And uh, you know, the one for Callaghan talks a great deal about Louis doing research out in the Mojave Desert. The one for Shalico deals with some of the research project, but a lot of the postscript for Shalico has to do with the making of the movie, which was uh, very innovative at the time. The the film was only so-so, but the way it was made was extremely innovative, and uh, the way it was financed. And so all of these have different qualities. The one for Last of the Breed talks a lot about where that particular story came from historically, you know, how it was related to the um, Gary Powers incident in the early 1960s, and uh, and then tells the story of the never-made film and uh, comic book version that we experimented with for a while. So each one of them has, has quite a few different pieces of my dad's life and uh, interesting facts behind the story. The second prong of Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures is the two books, Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures, Volumes 1 and 2. And those books have uh, a few finished stories, quite a few unfinished stories, and a number of treatments and other things that have to do with the publishing business. So a treatment is a description of a story that an author would send to a publisher to try and get a contract to write the novel, or a treatment is a description of a story that a writer would send to a movie studio to try and get the contract to write a film script. And uh, and so I, after each one of these is offered in the book, I will do some comments that explain what was going on in Dad's life at the time and what we know of the, about the story and if it's unfinished how he would have finished it. And I have quite a few notes and pieces of correspondence and pieces of his journals. And so there's, there's really a lot of evidence um, backing up some of the things that I'm, I'm talking about. So I'm talking, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of it is in my dad's own words also. And then the third part of the project is No Traveler Returns, which was my father's first novel. It was unfinished. And uh, it's part of his yandering series, so one of the earliest uh, kind of series of stories or universes that my father wrote in um, was looking at the, his life and the life of other people that were like him in the 1920s who were hobos and merchant seamen and soldiers of fortune and kind of all kinds of different nefarious characters who traveled all around the world. And, uh, and those stories are in Yandering, a short story collection, and No Travel Returns is a novel that very much belongs to that same, uh, that same grouping. And that's a novel that I finished and perfected and uh, have now got on the market. So there you go. These two volumes are 
packed with material, packed with stories and treatments and articles, like you said, they're fascinating. I've barely been able to scratch the surface of all of them, but my understanding from having read through them a little bit is that these stories collected here only represent maybe a fraction of the total left behind by your father after he passed. Is that true? Well, they are only a fraction, but they're, they are the most coherent fraction. <laughs> so it's, this is the stuff that, uh, uh, you know, other people can can read and make sense of. Um, there's there's definitely uh, there's definitely more, but I'm not sure how much uh, how much somebody else would would read some of the other stuff and then be able to make any you know make any sense out of it. Yeah, and that's this is this is what I don't know why I got so fascinated with this and just reading through your introductions that open each book and looking through the pictures that you included and just and trying to wrap my head around exactly how prolific he was. Everybody who follows his career knows how much he produced. I was not prepared for just exactly how prolific and how he was and his work ethic. So can you can you talk a little bit about your dad's seven day a week working style? And let's take it. We'll do a couple questions here that maybe peek behind the curtain a little bit based on some of the stuff you wrote in the intros. He the man worked. There's no question. Well, you know, dad, uh, a, a lot of his formative years were were very were very difficult. Um, you know, he he lived kind of on the road and on the street in the 1920s, and uh, he survived the 1930s uh, by living with his parents in a little at a little farm that his brother owned, and uh, they. Uh, they were doing better than just scraping by, but they, they, you know, times were, times were tough. And so, like a lot of people from that era, he had a, a very significant work ethic. To be able to work and to be able to earn any money at all was something he looked at as a, as a privilege more than anything else, and it was something he always felt like he had to make the most of. Also, not to be, uh, not to be underlooked or not to be overlooked, or however you'd say that. Um, Dad succeeded in coming up with a process that worked for him of opening up his unconscious and being able to write directly from his unconscious. And it made the process of writing very easy for him and very pleasurable. And I think one of the, part of the magic of reading a Louis L'Amour novel is the reader is also swept along by the feeling of pleasure in writing that the writer had. Reading a Louis L'Amour novel is a lot of fun because Dad was having a lot of fun. But the process of opening up unconsciously is very, very difficult. And if you don't stay in practice, um, it can become harder and harder. And I mean, I've had a little experience with this myself. Uh, it is difficult to recapture even after a couple of days of no work. So to, to keep the doors open, to keep that muscle available to him, he really felt like he had to work almost, almost every day. And so he was very uh, you know, compulsive in sort of a non-psychological manner, but he was, he was, very, he was very compulsive about, about staying with it and uh, not ever letting that, uh, that muscle lose its power. 
Yeah, that's what I, I gleaned from the from some of those introductions that he worked basically seven days a week. And and yes, you guys traveled, but they were like you said in the intros, they were working trips and he made sure to maybe sometimes at least take a small typewriter with him so he could work. It sounds like, yeah, he just he kept it turned on at all times. And then so following up on that, I would love for you to tell the, a little story again that's in one of the intros that I found delightful, hopefully the audience will too, of your younger years. You and your sister, it seems like, developed a strategy for how to get his attention while he was in his study typing away and you needed to talk to him about something. Can you repeat that story for the audience? Oh, certainly. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure how we ever we caught on to this. I'm not sure if he told us this or my mother told us this or something, but... If Dad was working um, and you wanted his attention, um, we would we would always kind of come up and we'd stand just just in his peripheral vision, so just off to one side. And if you if you stood there and you waited while he was writing, eventually he would get to a point where I guess he felt like he was kind of in control of getting himself started again, and he would stop. And then, you know, you could have like. 10 or 15 minutes with him and he was he was pretty happy to you know he was pretty happy to interrupt his work and and have a conversation as long as it didn't go on too long and then he would you know he would kind of like I got to get back to work and uh you know run along now and he'd sort of shush you out of the room <laughs> um but he was you know in some ways he was always available he just wasn't necessarily available for for long periods yeah, exactly. I always loved that. I could I could picture you guys. You know, you were you were you did put some great descriptions in the books about hearing the typewriter keys, him banging away in the study, and you'd have to walk up and stand just inside the vision, and then eventually he would get to you, and you could have your moments, and then there was a you know there was a cutoff, and it was time to go oh, time to go away. So he had to get back to it, but I thought it was a great strategy. Well played to you guys. Yeah, he was very he was very generous in in a lot of ways. He was actually a very terrific guy. And so then, in skipping much further ahead in time, when he passed away, you then you said in, in the books again that the task, the gargantuan task of sorting through everything he left behind then fell to you to read through all these manuscripts and materials and everything he'd been collecting and writing and dabbling with and catalog them and categorize them as you worked through that whole process. And maybe you eventually were thinking of something like the Lost Treasures Project might come about. But just in going through all those materials, were there was there one particular piece that you came across, or maybe a couple, that as you read them, that hit you harder than others? That there was something that stood out, you could hear your father's voice more forcefully, or whatever extent. Was there anything else that just jumped out of you that hit you harder than some of the others? I think the, uh, the last couple of stories in Lost Treasures, Volume 1, so this would be uh, Samsara and Journey to Aksu. So these are these are both um, not neither one of them are westerns. Uh, Journey to Aksu is set in central and western China, and Journey uh, and Samsara is kind of all over the place. So Samsara was a a story about people who have been reincarnated and they are attempting to regain their memories of past lives, and they have set up this kind of almost like a secret society or a network, and there are hidden libraries where they can kind of catch up on it. It's very 
very intriguing story, and he started it several different times. He started it, I think, four different times with completely different approaches. So one of them, the character is a is a uh, soldier for Alexander the Great, um, and then another one, the the main character is a a guy who has an antique store in Beverly Hills, and another one, the guy is a the main character. Uh, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure what culture that person lives in some mysterious kind of prehistoric culture and then the final one has all kinds of autobiographical details that are very very true to my father's life it's the only time he ever used a character that was drawn in 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 explicit detail from his childhood and so in that case the character was really like him and uh, so these are just two very mysterious, intriguing, intriguing stories that uh, over the years I have always wanted to know more about. And, and I knew about them even before uh, cleaning up my dad's office. These were, these were stories that he had talked about and I had read pieces of when I was younger. Man, it's really interesting. Did he, did, was anything revealed about his early childhood through those characters? Did you learn anything new from it, or was it just interesting to see the insight that he was able to put in there? Uh, when I first read uh, Samsara, I definitely learned some things about my dad's, uh, you know, youth in Jamestown, North Dakota, and his family's relationship with a group of gypsies or as they called them in those days, Syrians, who came through there and, uh, and may have had a longer, deeper relationship to the family than uh, you know, has previously been acknowledged. Um, so the first time I read that, I, you know, I, I found that to be interesting, and I asked him about it and got, got even, more, even more background on it. But that, that, of course, was before he died. Sure, sure. Um, and so... As we, as we, as a, yeah, you just referenced those two stories are at the, at the end of volume one. And of course, volume two was just released. And it seems like there was a strategy from the very beginning with volumes one and two. Uh, but it also seems like you, you intentionally maybe didn't put the, the manuscripts or the entries into any kind of order. Was there kind of a, was there a master plan for what went into volumes one and two uh, at all? Yes, definitely. They, of course, they need to be roughly the same length. Right. And I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to alternate Western material because his traditional fans will want to read that and non-Western material because I had a lot of that left. Um, the non-Western stuff, of course, because he had had a lot of success selling Westerns, there were quite a few unfinished non-Westerns. And Dad also experimented more with non-Western material. When I say experimented, I mean he, he tried things that perhaps didn't work out or he didn't know how to finish them or he felt like it wasn't the time to try and sell them. And uh, so, um, you know, there was, there was more perhaps uh, exploration in his writing in those areas. So I tried to alternate. I tried to make them roughly the same length. Um, I had a couple of uh, pieces that were particularly interesting and interrelated 
So like Journey to Aksu and Samsara are interesting and interrelated. They went into the first one. I had a couple of pieces that were extremely long. So there's a book about Tibet set in the early 1970s that um, is, there's, there's a great deal of it. There's 17 chapters yeah. of that particular book in volume two. So I put the longer ones in volume two. There's also 10 chapters of a sequel to his novel, Borden Chantry, a Western mystery, um, that are in, uh, are in volume two. So there was just, you know, sort of splitting things up and moving it around and trying to keep certain things that were related to one another close to one another, but also to have a balance and flow to the material. At the same time, I wanted both books to be unpredictable because as I was exploring this stuff, as I was finding it, the thing that I found fascinating was its unpredictability. You never knew what the next thing you were going to read was going to be like. Sure. I'm sure to, you know, to at least some degree that journey through all of his unfinished or unpublished works must have been fascinating. Just like you said, you just picking up stacks of papers, you had no idea what was going to come next. It was crazy. It was very exciting. I can, I can certainly imagine. And that's what that's what I did want to point out very quickly to the listeners as well, that certainly is if you pick these volumes up, and I highly encourage you to do so, there are, especially in volume one, like you said, there's tons of Western stuff. There's the beginnings of Western novels. There's treatments. I believe there's, there's some that have multiple chapters or at least a chapter of unfinished Western work. So there's tons of stuff stuff in the Western genre. But what you also find is that he, your father very much wanted to try other things, like you just mentioned. How much did he want to break out of the Western genre once he had become known for Westerns and try to do other things like science fiction and some of these adventure tales that he really seemed to love? Yeah, well, he, he wanted to break away from Westerns quite a bit. That doesn't mean he wanted to stop writing Westerns. He just wanted the opportunity to do other things. And uh, in the early days, in his magazine writing days, he was able to sell, uh, you know, he was able to sell stories of almost any genre he wanted because there was a magazine for just about everything. In fact, there were 15 or 20 magazines for just about any particular genre. But uh, when you, um, you know, once he stopped, when he got away from the, the magazines, when the magazines went out of business, and he started writing paperback originals, um, you know, they wanted you to stick to your category. And after five years or so of, of writing quite a few paperback westerns that were fairly successful, I mean, he wasn't, up until the mid to late 1970s, he wasn't getting wealthy or anything like that. But he, he, was, he was doing okay, and he felt that he wanted to... Uh, you know, he wanted to branch out and write other things, and the publishers and the bookstores and, you know, everybody involved were sort of like, you know, no, you just started to succeed at writing Westerns. You need to stick with that. And uh, he did, and then he slowly came up with this plan to sort of change the Westerns he was writing, maybe even change the whole Western genre a little bit so that he could write things that were more international, that took place in different time periods. And that's when he started writing the stories about the Sackett family in the early days of the United States, you know, in the pre-colonial days, the days of earliest exploration, and writing stories that took place in the Mountain Man era 
and uh, things of that sort. And he started sort of easing people into the idea that he might write something in other genres. And then right at the end of his life, he was able to sell Last of the Breed and Haunted Mesa, which is science fiction. Last of the Breed is a thriller. And uh, The Walking Drum, which is his you know, kind of 12th century historical novel, which actually was written in 1960. It was written at the time he first tried to break away from writing westerns, and he wasn't able to sell it for another 25 years or so. Wow, yeah. And it seems like the strategy that he hit on there, if I'm reading you correctly, and if, if I understood some of the stuff in the books correctly, was that he would use the generational aspect of the characters. He would create a, a family with characters and backstory, and the, the characters would be able to lead him into other time periods that were not typical Western time periods, not the, the period of the American West of the 1860s to the 1880s, that time period. Is that roughly kind of what he did? That's one of the things that he did. But he also, you know, he experimented with writing. He wrote a contemporary Western, so he wrote The Broken Gun, which, you know, takes place, I guess, I think in the late 1950s. It's about a mystery whose roots are in the pioneer period, so it's kind of a melding of traditional Western and modern Western. Um, he wrote Riley's Luck, uh, which is definitely a kind of an epic Western, but uh, a fair amount of uh, adventure takes place in Europe in the 1870s. And, uh, and so he, he experimented with a, a number of different approaches, um, probably the most far out. And one of the earliest ones was the Californios, which uh, took place in, the, in California in the 1830s. So Mexican California that was being, you know, slowly invaded by illegal aliens from the United States. Right. And, um, and it also had an element of science fiction and mysticism to it. So it had, it had a number of different qualities where he was sort of stretching the genre or stretching his place in the genre to see if he could get away with it. And when he did, um, he, he definitely started writing other things. Right. And I, so I, I want to try to wrap up here with three, three questions um, that are uh, selfish on my part. So I'm going uh-huh. to get into a little bit of the stuff that, that I loved and my family loved. One of the reasons this is such a treat is that uh, I think I was introduced to your father's work in maybe a different way than a lot of people, though potentially the same. I'm not really sure. But I, our family loved the audio dramatizations that were produced How of your father's sure. short stories. We loved those. And there was, uh, to peek behind the curtain here, maybe I've said this on the podcast before. I can't remember. I'm horrible at that kind of thing. I know I've had this conversation with others, but it was exactly one hour from our family's house to our uncle's farm where we spent a lot of time. My dad's brother still lived on the family farm where they grew up. So it was one hour from our house to the farm, and we'd throw on a Louis L'Amour audio dramatization they would get us there, and another one would get us back, and they were perfectly timed. So we listened to tons of these, and you know, we started out with the cassette tapes, graduated up to the CDs. I then bought them in digital form along the way. Right. So that was how I was first introduced to, to Louis L'Amour. And so the, the favored son of the Wimmer family was the Texas Ranger Chick Beaudry. 
We loved the Chick Baudry stories. So I want to wrap up with some selfish Chick Baudry questions and audio dramatization questions. If you can answer them, fantastic. If not, I at least want to ask because, you know, this is, this is a great opportunity. So first of all, how many people do ask you about the character of Chick Baudry? I'm sure we can't be the only ones who love that character. No, no. Chick, Chick Baudry very, is very popular. And uh, he, he was popular at the time that my dad uh, wrote about him in the magazine stories, and certainly a lot of people have listened to those stories on uh, on cassette. So he's he's definitely you're not the only one. I had I had no doubt. I knew that there were probably legions of fans out there. But you know, growing up in Des Moines, Iowa, and then driving into Southwest Iowa, we felt like the only ones who knew about Chick Beaudry, and he was part <laughs> of the family as we would drive back and forth and. Anytime the family went somewhere, there were always these stories that we would play. So what can you, what can you tell us, if anything, about the creation of the character of Chick Beaudry? Did you have any insight into how that character came to be? No, I just know that Dad, um, Dad very much uh, liked, I mean, writing series was a tactic to get, if it was successful, to get the publisher um, to, to buy more. And... And so, you know, in this case, these were published in uh, Western pulp, you know, Western story magazines in the pulp magazine era, and uh, and so Dad would Dad created several different series, and some of the editors didn't like it because they could feel themselves getting beholden to that particular writer, and of course, they were always nervous that the writer was going to then ask for more money or one of these things that they couldn't do because. All of those operations were kind of run on a shoestring, but uh, you know it was a it was a good business tactic. And uh, if you could create something that was uh, you know popular, it just helped out in in many different in many different ways. Sure, of course, of course. So the kind of my my last selfish question here is about the audio dramatizations themselves. Can you give any insight into? the behind the scenes of the production of them. How did the idea of these come to be? How did it come into fruition? Where were many decades after the old radio westerns used to be popular? So how did someone even have these ideas? Uh, In the earliest days of audio publishing, so there had been, prior to the mid-1980s, there had been books for the blind, and occasionally someone would make a uh, recording of someone reading a book. Uh, And even in the days of radio drama, there were certain uh, dramas that were basically a group of actors who just got together to read a book. Um, But, you know, know, obviously 30 years had gone by since since that. And um, in the mid-1980s, the people who were starting up the Bantam Books audio publishing division came to my dad because... Almost anything that Bantam wanted to experiment with, they came to him first because they knew that if they could get his fans on board, it wouldn't fail. It might not be the most popular thing in the whole world, but it it wouldn't be like no one showed up at all. Right. (laughs) Okay? Because Dad had a very loyal loyal fan base. Yep. And, um, And so they came to him and they wanted to experiment with doing some audiobooks. And because they felt like it was the uh, least expensive way of getting involved, and they said, well, we want, to do sh- we want to start off doing short stories. We want it to be small. We want it to be controllable. We don't want to get in too deep. And then things got a little weird, because 
dad said, well, if you're going to do my short stories, I'm not sure that a lot of my short stories are really all that good. And I don't want to present that as the cutting edge of where I'm at now in the 1980s. So what can we do with them to make them more exciting, to give them more, you know, more value? And they cooked up this idea of doing them like radio dramas uh, or like an updated version of a classic era radio drama. And uh, somewhere along in those first couple of shows, I got involved and became one of the producers because I was the person in the family who had been working in the film business and had also been working in audio recording and knew Kind of, kind of little edges of all the different things we were doing. I certainly was no expert in those days, but uh, ultimately, very quickly, what happened was is that they um, they discovered that there were very few of the stories that they could simply have a cast read and then add sound effects and music and things like that, and it would be exactly sixty minutes. So. You know, quite quickly they learned that they had to have a script that was written, you know, that was not the exact text of the story, or they would never make that precise time time limitation. And so I got more and more involved as the script writing process uh, evolved, because that's the kind of thing that I was doing in those days in other, you know, in other ways. I was working in a film business to a certain extent, and so. I got more and more involved in that, and uh, it was a it was a ton of fun. I mean, it was just it was just great. I think we did our our last uh, our last production like four or five years ago. Oh so, man, I did, I didn't realize they they were continuing until that point. We did uh, six productions a year all through the 1980s and maybe almost to the end of the 90s. And then we did four for quite a few years, and those were one-hour uh, dramas. And then in 2004, we did a uh, uh, we did a, a two-hour uh, Son of a Wanted Man adaptation of Son of a Wanted Man. And then in and then about I don't know seven or eight years after that, you know, so big long wag in there. <laughs> um, we did a three-hour adaptation of The Diamond of Giroux. That's the most recent one. And those two took a very long time because I just did those almost as a labor of love. I mean, we weren't really making any money off of them or anything. And because of that, uh, they had to be done very slowly whenever I and the guy that I work with um, had some spare time. So we would end up working maybe one week a month, about 10 months of the year. And so production on Son of a Wanted Man took about, it took about four years to get enough days, you know, to the point where we had that show in the can. And I think, I think the production of uh, uh, The Diamond of Drew, I think it took, took us about seven years. Um, wow. You're, you're committed. There's no question. Yeah, it, it was, it, but you know, you just grind away at it. We, you know, we, on both of those shows, we probably spent seven to ten days in the recording studio with the actors right in the beginning, and then there's just all of the editing and the creating the sound effects and doing all the, that stuff, and to just 
to do the kind of work that was good enough so that we could have fun doing it, um, it took a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I only have a, a tiny little slice of experience in that world myself, but it's actually kind of funny. Part of the reason I ask is that as I daydream about the future, I'm sitting in the studio where I hope to sometime in the near future create a Western audio drama for the podcast medium that is now so popular. And, right. you know, it's it's go it's driving into fiction and it's get, we're going right back to those old uh, radio drama days just with modern technology. And so I, I'm on a one-man mission to bring back the Western audio and drama. And so it's funny. I've actually looked up some of the, the people who played those old characters from the Chick Beaudry stories, Rethel Bean and some mm-hmm. of the others. See, man, what are they doing now? Is there any chance that I, they're still around and I might be able to get one of them to sign on to this thing if we get it off the ground? So the, the daydreams are strong, so I totally get it. <laughs> well, if you have any questions about technique, give me give me a call. I'm more than happy. To I was, was going to say I, I would certainly have to. I will need lots of advice, so I'm probably going to have to give you a call. To wrap it all up, Volume Two of the Lost Treasures just came out, so I want to hear very quickly at the end what's next. What what are you wrapping up? You mentioned this before we started recording, but what's left on the docket as far as the Lost Treasures project goes? The last few pieces of the Lost Treasures project will be. Uh, some some more of the postscripts that are going to go into the novels. I intentionally left um, all of the work that I would do for the Sackett novels till the end because as I as I write these things, I discover elements uh, that I will want to put into other postscripts. So as I do the research, I, I I learn things about other stories. So the Sackett series will probably have three or four books in it that will have postscripts and so I have I have that material sort of laying in a pile on my desk right now I have to go through that and figure out how I'm gonna how many stories I'm gonna break it into and what's going to be included in each and uh, and there's just a you know there's just general uh, general work on uh, uh, on the Lamore franchise that has to be done there's still you know, there's still some books to be recovered, uh, you know, book covers, and there's um, my producer and I are re-editing a couple of our old audios, and so we are, we're going back into uh, uh, Unguarded Moment and Murano of the Dry Country. Oh, yeah. I know that one for sure. Yeah, we are, we are re-editing those because we had all the pieces laying around, and so we, we really could we could update them and, and make them uh, more more modern shows. A lot of the shows that we have, we don't we don't have all the discrete elements, but those two we had at all. So um, there'll be an editorial process on those that'll go on for you know quite a while. So there's there's plenty to work on. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, but thank you for your time. I certainly appreciate it. And I, I guess if, if to to say this again. LouisLamoursLostTreasures.com also has a ton of information. You can get uh, lists of what's going on. There are, I think, what did you say? There were more than 30 books now that have postscripts attached to them? Uh, I don't know exactly how many of those are currently for sale, but I have written uh, around 30, and I still have a few more to go. And uh, so I, I generally don't pay too much attention to what's hitting the market. I'm more focused on the things that I'm that I'm writing and are are going back and forth between 
myself and the editor, and sometimes, you know, I'll write something, and sometimes it'll be a year before, it, or two years before it comes out. So I don't pay too much attention to what's, what's coming out at any one moment. So I'd have to say, check the Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures website for uh, all of the postscripts that are currently available. Right. Well, there it is. That, that's the advice to everybody listening. Check it out. If you're a huge fan of Louis L'Amour like I am, you've got a lot of stuff coming your way. Uh, so thank you very much again for your time, and hopefully we'll talk to you down the road. You're so welcome. Thanks for listening, as always. And before I let you go, I have two more quick reminders. First, our merchandise shop is finally up. Man, that was a chore like you wouldn't believe, but it's finally done. If you go to our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, you'll find a link to the store. It has the t-shirts you've seen us wearing and much more. And finally, while you're on the site, please sign up for our monthly newsletter. It gives you a peek behind the curtain at Black Barrel Media. Each month I throw in a nugget about the production of our shows, and we have a listener spotlight section and a section that features some of the other great people who have made these shows what they are. And there's a lot more, don't worry. You can find all this stuff at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you very soon for Jesse James. It is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.